I'd love for you now to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 2, verse 5 down to verse 17. We have still another insight as to what's involved in our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Now, what we've been doing is to explore over the course of these Sundays together various phrases, haven't we, that have been associated with Jesus Christ. We have pondered, for example, what does it mean to be in Christ? There are those that don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We would say that they are outside of Christ. Therefore, we also have to consider what does it mean to go through Christ? Because so many people in this world will bypass Christ in their attempt to get to God. But God has established one means to come to him, and it is through Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. Well, there are other phrases we've been exploring, but this morning we're going to be looking very carefully at a phrase of Christ that are found in these verses. So picking it up now in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, look for that phrase and see how it relates to your life and to my life. Because here we find, now, if anyone is caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, Even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. And so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, we're going to try to make sense out of these words and see how relevant and applicable they are to our lives. Let's look to our Lord together in prayer. And our Father, what I want to do now is we're coming into your presence. I want to pray first of all for anybody in these services today who's coming, who has found that they've been indifferent so far to Jesus. Maybe he or she just has not taken seriously the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. 
but is finding that there's something attractive, something alluring about this, but at the same time overwhelmed by the fact that what Jesus is saying about himself, what Paul is teaching about Christ is very exclusive. That there is a centrality to Jesus. That there is an exclusiveness about Jesus. There is a distinctive about Jesus that separates who he is from all others. That separates what Christ has done from anything and everything we have done. We want the centrality of Jesus Christ to be our focal point this morning again. So in these minutes together, it's our prayer that you would again warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. We've come here to see Jesus and him only. Pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It was 22 years ago where I was asked by the chaplain of the University of Pittsburgh if I would be willing to speak uh, before a Pitt Ohio State football game. The Pitt Panthers were doing well, and one of their assistant coaches, Ken Koch, here, uh, attended our church and frankly would speak in my place when I was away for various reasons. He had gone to a divinity school and had studied scripture in the original languages and did a great job whenever he was in the pulpit. When I got done speaking in the chapel just before the game was to take place, I remember very clearly that there was a man who approached me, young man, running back. He had his eyes, well, they were glistening, and as he approached me and shook my hand, and he said, so you are the senior pastor to Coach Kotcher? And I said, yes, I am. Coach Kotcher's invested a lot in me, he said. And I want you to know, he's a man of Christ. And then Curtis walked away. Now, I've had many memorable conversations at the end of services throughout the years of ministry, but that's one that stands out in my mind. In a very succinct way, here's a man who didn't want to talk about himself. He wanted to talk about the man who had invested in him and would describe him in such a distinctive way. My coach is a man of Christ. And as I was reflecting upon this passage this week, that experience leaped out of these pages and once again refreshed my mind as to the way in which the centrality of Jesus Christ makes a powerful difference in your life and my life in the way in which we relate to other people. What I want to do now with you as we continue this mini-series on Christ is to develop this morning with that phrase of Christ in mind three significant connections that I think are going to have direct bearing upon our understanding of what it means to be a man, to be a woman of Christ. 
And the first of the three flows out of verse 5 down through verse 11. We're going to phrase it like this, number one. I want you to note with me the connection here between forgiveness and the presence of Christ. Forgiveness and the presence of Christ. We're going to inch our way into this passage, but note at the very onset that there is something that has been troubling the spirit, the soul of various people within the church of Corinth. What's happened? Paul now says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now notice very carefully that evidently there are people in this church that have been pained, that have experienced relational pain because of something that someone within their midst had done to them, that it affected them deeply. Pause and ask yourself, now, where in my life experience have I experienced such dramatic pain that it has caused me to pause and evaluate, do I want to be associated with brothers and sisters in Jesus? Well, here now is Paul, and he's not going to disconnect himself from those who are experiencing the pain, nor the one who has produced the pain, but rather he is now giving a sense of a way to move forward. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. Now his perspective statement. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Evidently, you see, this man has done something that has required some form of church discipline. But now, this man has evidently repented of the sin. What you and I have to do at this point is to remind ourselves that what Paul is saying here, that the punishment is enough. You should forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. What this means then is repentance, true repentance, requires full, not partial, forgiveness. Now, is there someone within your life that has pained you very deeply and severely? It might be an individual. It might be a group of individuals. Have you reached a point where you are offering demonstratively, visibly, full, not partial, forgiveness? What I want to say at this point is this. There's a difference between forgiveness and probation. And one of the great dangers and the great challenges in Christian circles is that the one who comes into worship services relationally wounded might have a tendency to substitute probation for forgiveness, claiming that that person has been forgiven. In reality, that person has been put on probation. 
And the person who knows that he or she is on probation feels it. It creates a sense of being unsettled, distrusted, watched. My goodness, sometimes wounded people even put churches on probation. That if they do not relationally reach out to me by X number of minutes, X number of days, X number of weeks, X number of years, the clock is ticking and I will turn my back. Now, Peter is having a conversation with Jesus. Jesus has addressed this whole matter of how to handle the one who's produced such woundedness. Peter comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, and says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And now, in the form of a question, Peter offers a recommendation. You can almost see the tilt of the head at this point. Say, uh, as many as seven times? No. What Peter was doing at that point was trying to cap forgiveness, wasn't he? You ever try to cap forgiveness? And say, I will allot only so much time and uh, so much behavior. If they don't meet my criteria, well, then they will remain on probation, but I'll distance myself from him, her, or them. And the words of Jesus come crashing down upon the soul. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Not exactly, you see, what Peter wanted to hear. But this is the idea behind what Martin Luther wanted to provide where he, a Catholic turned early reformer and Protestant movement, was able to say to somebody who had been part of the movement of saving grace but had hurt other individuals within the movement, the sad news has reached me that one of my brothers has gone astray and has fled to you for refuge. I regret that the whole affair yeah, was so disgraceful. Nevertheless, I am happy that you were honorable and helpful in taking him in and have made it possible to end his shame. Now, notice how he is willing to relationally reconnect. Are you willing to do that? To relationally reconnect. Persuade him to come yourself. Treat him so kindly he will come of his own wish. I shall welcome him with open arms. He has nothing to fear. I am aware that great sins happen. It's not unusual when a man goes wrong. The miracle occurs when he comes to his senses again. An angel an angel once sinned even in heaven. So did Adam in paradise. So did Peter, who fell. And the one who would fall, Peter, wants to cap forgiveness. Does he realize that this will work against him if he does so? Seven times? 
And Jesus explodes his mathematical tables by responding, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. He simply used the seven and expanded it in such a way that Peter got the hint that you're not going to cap what God refuses to cap. Are you thankful that God has not put you on probation when you were saved by grace through faith? And now, having grasped that understanding, is there a natural tendency in the soul to put others on probation rather than to offer forgiveness and reconnect when there has been a disconnect in your life, in your heart, in your soul, yes, in your relationships through the course of the years? Well, he notes the pain, doesn't he, in verses 5, 6, and 7. But so did Luther when he wrote to his, to his, his gathering people who loved Jesus as he did. But then adds a perspective now as he moves them through the pain they've experienced in 5 through 7 to the love they're to be exhibiting in verses 8 and 9. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. In other words, it's not enough to say, but I affirmed my love to him in the past. What you need to be able to do is to reaffirm your love for him in the present. Are you doing that? Maybe somebody has crushed your spirit, and you feel so tremendously disconnected. And you say, but I affirm my love for that person, that group, that church, whatever the case might be in the past. And now what God is calling you to do is to reaffirm that love for that person, that group, that church in the present. For you see, true repentance calls for immediate and full forgiveness, not partial. And full forgiveness is demonstrative, not theoretical. And I love this fact. It's not probation. It's unconditional. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Jesus turns the mathematical formula around and ministers to Peter in such a profound way that while Peter was willing to cap forgiveness because somebody had wounded him, Jesus was not willing to cap forgiveness when Peter wounded him, but rather offering and reaffirming in the presence his love And his forgiveness for Peter, Peter then now was released to have the impact upon the streets of Jerusalem he was meant to have, but he needed to have that sense of release. And when people are not fully forgiven, there is never that true sense of authentic release to do and to be all that we were meant to do and to be. Probation or forgiveness. You note the pain, it's there, verses 5 through 7, but you are not going to be held in bondage to the bitterness of the pain produced. 
but rather the love is to be exhibited in verse 8 and 9. And now what Paul is doing is teaching exactly, you see, what Peter would would have experienced from Jesus. Ronald Reagan. His attitude after the 1982 attempt on his life had a powerful impression, made a powerful impression on his daughter, Patty Davis. After his death, she penned these words. The following day, my father said he knew his physical healing was directly dependent on his ability to forgive John Hinckley. Let me say that again. The following day, my father said he knew his physical healing was directly dependent on his ability to forgive John Hinckley. By showing me that forgiveness is the key in everything, including physical health and healing, he gave me an example of Christ-like thinking. Are you giving a powerful example of Christ-like thinking? in the way in which you manage the relationships that God has brought into your life, not so as to disconnect, but to reconnect. Yes, the pain was experienced, but nonetheless, the love is to be exhibited. And now what I want to do with you is to, in this whole matter of the connecting, connect the forgiveness that we are to offer to the sense of the presence of Christ that needs to be felt. Look carefully at verse 10 and 11. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive, Paul writes to them. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake. And mark this. There's your of Christ. In the presence of Christ. Paul has such a sense of the presence of Christ. When one disconnects from those who produce the pain, not only do they disconnect from the presence of those who produce the pain, they disconnect furthermore from the presence of Christ. And then we wonder, where are you, God? And the danger is not only do we put others on probation, then the danger becomes that we begin to put God on probation. But God doesn't do that with you or me. Because what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So the beauty of it all here now at this point is that you and I begin to see the powerful movement of the Holy Spirit when we offer something which is authentic from the inside out. And this is where there's a powerful movement of the Holy Spirit in the midst of people, even in the midst of the warm coming and goings of summer days for churches nationwide. Neil Foster penned a book entitled A Revolution of Love. It talks about the Western Canadian revivals in the 1970s. My former senior pastor, Erwin Lutzer, used to tell some of these stories when Pam and I attended the Moody Church before I became a pastor. Suddenly, something broke. 
Perhaps it was our Anglo-Saxon reserve giving way before the unction of the Holy Spirit. But though words are inadequate, there was an explosion of love based on forgiveness. It seemed as if the campgrounds were covered with love. Who's to say they were not? Hundreds of witnesses would agree you could feel the presence of God. And when revival later came to Saskatoon, we had no trouble understanding our brethren when they said, quote, we are wading knee-deep in love. Gut feel, that's what a lot of people are longing for, looking for. But it starts with us. Not putting someone else on the clock and saying, they've got X number of days, weeks, months, years to produce. Or I'll disconnect. So you note the connection here, you see, between forgiveness and the presence of God. And when we disconnect forgiveness from the presence of God, the end result is we are disconnected from the sense of the presence of God. Now, that's your 5 through 11. And I ponder that when I think about Curtis, who's standing there at the end of the chapel service, and he says, Coach Kotcher, he's a man of Christ. And that phrase of Christ still stands out in my mind to this very day. You connect the number one, forgiveness in the presence of Christ, 5 through 11. But second of all, you and I, we connect purposefulness and the gospel of Christ. And we see that now in verses 12 and 13. I'm going to read it, and then let's process it. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, there it is again, the word of, of Christ. Even though a door was open for me in the Lord, My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. And so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Look very carefully at how this is phrased when I came to Troas. Troas today is in modern day Turkey. And on Friday night, late Friday night, I was watching the news, and the particular newscaster who was trying to track the events that were unfolding out on the streets, you see, of Istanbul, lost contact with the reporter that was there and said, I'm sorry, but we have been disconnected. And I took even that phrase then and jotted it down into my notes. Now, here we find Paul, and there he is in Troas. Troas, about eight miles from ancient Troy. Maybe you've heard of the war between Sparta and Troy and the likes in the Trojan War and Helen of Troy and so on. When I came to Troas, the next phrase is not found in the original, the word preach. 
But notice very carefully the word to. When you see the word to, the word for, carries with the idea of purposefulness. There's an intentionality now tied to Paul, no matter where he finds himself. What I came to Troas, in other words, purpose statement for the gospel of Christ. Now, you and I traffic among people, maybe it's at work, maybe it's with patients, maybe it's with students, maybe it's with co-workers, whoever it is, who are continuously wrestling with the question, why am I here? And every time they are severely pained by the experiences of life, they are wrestling with the why question, the purpose question. Why I'm here and why am I going through what I'm going through? Notice now that Paul himself, in the unsettledness of life, states, when I came to Troas too, carries with the idea of purposefulness, the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel? It is the entirety, the sum total of God's redemptive plan and activity, past, present, future, taking into account the strategic plan in eternity past when God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit covenanted for Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity, to come into this world in due time to die in our place for our sins. And in history, all generations prior to that point were leading up toward that significant moment when Jesus went to that cross and would shout out phrases like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But moves us onward to that point where ultimately Christ returns and onward to the new heaven on the new earth. And we see the strategic plan of the gospel strategy unfold. So we have a purposefulness, why we are here, where we are, what we are doing at this particular point in time. You and I have purpose. But we may not necessarily feel restful inside when it comes to what we're doing. But neither was Paul. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, he could see access. Notice now his inner state. My spirit was not at rest. You ever been there? feel as though inwardly your spirit's not at rest. You have felt so disconnected, troubled. Because I did not find my brother Titus there. He's longing for that relational connectedness. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But they're going to reconnect. John Gartner, who has spoken to various business leaders through the course of years in his life, when he would come up to people and talk, he would sometimes tell them about an elderly man who would ask the same question of just about every new acquaintance that he entered into conversation with. It was not, what do you do for a living, or how many children do you have, or where do you live? But rather he would ask, what have you done that you believe in?
Now, that's a purpose question. It drives us then to start thinking seriously about what we are doing and why we are doing what we are doing and what we ought to be doing and what is it that I truly believe in that as a result has impact in terms of what I do. Now, Paul was a man of purpose. He did not just simply randomly move through the days of his life. If you and I are going to be people of purposefulness, we've got to be people marked by forgiveness. Forgiveness and purposefulness go hand in hand. Verses 5 and through 11 have to be tied to verses 12 to 13. And the moment we choose probation rather than forgiveness then we are into a state of confusion when it comes to matters of purposefulness. So you see the connections unfolding here. The presence of Christ in 5 through 11 has got to be tied to the gospel of Christ found in verses 12 and again in verse 13. And even though you might have the presence of Christ, and furthermore, you have the gospel of Christ, there will be times where you're going to still experience the unsettledness of the soul. Don't let that stop you from pursuing the blend of forgiveness and the sense of purposefulness in what it is that God's calling you to do, to have impact, you see, for the glory of God. Now, there's a third connection I want you to see here. I'm going to read it slowly. I'll give the main connection, read it slowly, and then show you a visual. But thirdly, now, I want you to note with me not only the connection between forgiveness and the presence of Christ, we saw in 5 through 11, purposefulness, and the gospel of Christ, we see it in 12 and 13. Thirdly, thankfulness and the aroma of Christ. You see, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are going to speak to your soul. Look for the phrase, the aroma of Christ. But thanks be to God, there's the idea of thankfulness now, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death, to death, to the other of fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient, he asked, for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of Christ, we speak in Christ. Now, what do we make of this passage? Well, there's a historical background. Notice how verse 14 unfolds. Let's make sense of it. But thanks be to God. You're offering thanks to God when you have a sense of forgiveness in your soul for others, not probation, a sense of purposefulness in life, not confusion. There ought to be a thankfulness to God, not withheld, a thankfulness 
But notice the historical context. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. What does that mean? And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, for we are the aroma of Christ to God. And you're saying, aroma? Help me. Look at what appears on the screen. This scene is the setting of Rome. Now in Rome, we stood at the place where Paul embarked from his boat as he made his way to Rome to be tried. We walked from the Colosseum to this major setting you see in front of you that seated 250,000 people. Imagine that in the stadiums of today, the sports stadiums. They pale in significance. And that major stadium was Circus Maximus and walked the old Roman roads to get there. Let a commentator now help us to understand as the next scene now appears on the screen as well. The picture that I'm trying to create for you that's found here in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17 is the picture of the Roman triumph. Here's the background. If a commander-in-chief won a complete victory over the enemy on foreign soil, a general, if he killed at least 5,000 enemy soldiers and gained new territory for the emperor, then that general was entitled to what was known as the Roman Triumph. A processional would be established in his honor. It would include this general riding in a golden chariot, surrounded by his officers, And the parade would also include a display of the spoils of battle, the captive enemy soldiers, and listen now. And the Roman priests would also be in the parade burning, carrying and burning incense, creating an aroma of victory in the air as they pay tribute to the victorious army. Did you seize that? Are you linking that now to what you have just found here in verses 14 and 15? But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Paul is using that very experience that the Greeks had in fact known when Rome conquered Greece. And some of their own family members then would have been taken in this processional as the priests were allowing the aroma of victory to cascade through the air and through us spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And now Paul applies this spiritually and adds, for we are the aroma of Christ. For you see, the procession would follow a route that would make its way through the streets that I walked in Rome. It would end at Circus Maximus as the people of Rome would gather together and watch in the setting while the general would usher in all that had accompanied him and all he had conquered as the crowd would stand and applaud and the priests would offer the aroma of victory in the presence. Now, if you were one of the captives, 
that would be the aroma of death. But if you were one of the soldiers in alignment with the general, that would be the aroma of life. If you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, his death and resurrection is the aroma of death. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, this is the aroma of life. And that's what stands behind this now when Paul would go on to say in verse 16, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. And then poses the question, who's sufficient for these things? And then adds, for we are not, in verse 17, like so many peddlers of God's word. No. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. And that's why when you and I look carefully throughout the scriptures, we have this sense, you see, of victory being established again and again and again in the writings here that are found throughout God's word. For as John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, puts it, there was no defeatism about the early Christians. They spoke rather of victory. Even in the catacombs, their arms were lifted upwards towards the heavens to illustrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For example, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory. Again, in all these things we are more than conquerors. And each of Christ's letters to the seven churches of Asia ends with a special promise to him who overcomes. And now you've tied it together. Forgiveness in the presence of Christ. Purposefulness in the gospel of Christ. Thankfulness and the aroma of Christ as you see now the historical military background as the incense was being offered to the false gods in Rome. But the believer who loves Jesus Christ, his life, her life, is offered to the true God who offered his son and three days later was raised, you see, from the dead. You are the aroma of Christ. And I thought about that. When Curtis, at the end of his pro football career, was being inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame, and I was linking what he was saying then to what he had said to me prior to his NFL career. And sports writers were overtaken with his eloquence and his ability to communicate effectively even without notes. And I'm thinking about Ken and the impact he had upon Curtis's life. As Curtis made absolutely certain to give honor to the one who so impacted him and shaped his life for God's glory. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If so, your life's to be mocked by a sense of forgiveness, not probation purposefulness, not confusion, thankfulness, not bitterness, and our Lord gets all the glory. Let's stand together.
thanking you and praising you, Father. The collective body of Jesus Christ in this church, we've got so many different personality types, so many different backgrounds, various passions regarding various issues that are close to heart. But there needs to be a centrality. It's Jesus. What we need to do is to communicate this distinctiveness in this pluralistic culture we find ourselves in. It's Jesus. So, Father, take what is here in these verses and may we apply it now vigorously to our lives so that we don't disconnect from you or one another, but we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.